My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. You know, we tend to think of leadership a lot as a businessy kind of idea, that the only people who have things to say of value about leadership are people who went to Harvard Business School and work in big companies. And I sort of feel that we can get insights about good leadership from all walks of life, from parenting through nonprofit organizations, through big companies. One of the conclusions I've come to is great leadership is great leadership. Chris Lowney seems to live at the intersection between mission, leadership, culture, and spirit. He's the author of six books on leadership, mission, and culture. He is the vice chair of the board of Common Spirit Health, one of America's largest nonprofit faith-based health systems. He has served both within the Jesuit order and later in his life as a managing director of J.P. Morgan & Company on three continents. His efforts in philanthropy and social entrepreneurship include helping to launch online university education in refugee camps in Africa and elsewhere, co-founding Contemplative Leaders in Action, an emerging leader formation program now active in a half dozen cities, and also founding Pilgrimage for Our Children's Future, which supports education and healthcare projects among severely impoverished, marginalized communities. That is certainly a diversity of experience, and we are very pleased to be in conversation with Chris Lowney in this episode. Chris, you've been an avid writer. A couple of your notable works uh, that I've had the pleasure to take a look at. One, uh, Everyone Leads. Uh, another, Heroic Leadership, drawing on the, the history and expertise of the Jesuits and applying some of the principles to, to leadership in life from that order. And also, Pope Francis, you've also written uh, Why He Leads and the Way He Leads. How did you get started writing on these themes, and what attracted you to these themes as an author and to that kind of work? So you heard I was a, a Jesuit for a few years, and then I was, and then I worked in an investment bank, which are two pretty different things to do. So maybe I started yes. writing as a, a cheaper way to figure out my own life than going into therapy. Uh, you know, heroic leadership was the first thing I wrote, and in a way, it kind of it sort of looks at the early history of the Jesuits and tries to take away some lessons about leadership that might be relevant, you know, whatever somebody's tra faith tradition happens to be, or if one has no faith tradition at all, and tries to extract some lessons about leadership from them. You know, are, by, arguably, the Jesuits have been very successful by almost any measure one chooses to lose, use. And um, my thought was maybe it'd be interesting to see what we could learn about leadership from them. I guess I was sort of interested in, I mean, one, I'm kind of interested in leadership. You know, it's kind of an, an evergreen dilemma for people in all walks of life. I mean, everybody feels like they need better leadership than they have, and nobody quite knows what it means or how to get it or what it looks like or anything. So I agree that it's really important, and I wanted to contribute to that conversation. So that was one motivation, I guess, for for writing. And another one was, you know, we tend to think of leadership a lot as a businessy kind of idea that the only people who have things to say of value about leadership are 
people who went to Harvard Business School and work in big companies. And I sort of feel that, well, you know, I mean, we can get insights about good leadership from all walks of life, from parenting through nonprofit organizations, through big companies, through religious organizations. And I happen to feel that there were some really spiritual aspects of great leadership. And in a way, I wanted to try to draw those out in heroic leadership and in other things I've written as well. And no doubt your your experience both with the Jesuits and the service that was offered there, plus also with J.P. Morgan and being a um, a leader within that organization, um, offering leadership in a number of different countries. Were there particular stories that have been iconic for you? These stories had something to say to you about leadership. You drew from them. Any iconic leadership stories like that that you might have? You know, I didn't have these words until much later in my life, like just within the last few years, but I've been pretty taken with a definition of leadership that the that the US Air Force uses and a part of that definition, I won't say all of it, is that leadership involves winning people's respect and confidence and cooperation. And I've always found that a really powerful and good idea, you know, the the idea that it's about winning people's respect, confidence, cooperation. And when I think of people who had a very positive impact in my own life, I could probably put all of those individual little anecdotes and stories into that definition in one way or another. You know, in other words, somebody treated me in such a way or operated their department in such a way that it won my respect, you know, won my quality, sure. made me want to be in their, on their team. So, sure. you know, I guess that's the takeaway idea I would have and that I, you know, often share with groups, you know, that I think one of your jobs as a manager is to do a little self-audit on precisely that question. How are you winning people's confidence, respect, cooperation? And a lot of managers kind of take it for granted. You know, I'm the boss. Well, of course they respect me. And well, maybe that happened 70 years ago, but it doesn't happen now. <laughs> You know, in your writings, you've you've looked at the topic of leadership thoroughly, and you've written a couple of different books with a couple of different angles on that. What would you say are some of the practices of great leadership? Maybe I could mention two. I mean, I could say that I think people who lead well, at the end of the day, somehow are self-aware people. You know, they have some strength, some sense of their own strengths and weaknesses. They kind of know what they stand for. You know, what their values are. They've they've thought about uh, how people ought to treat one another. They have a point of view on the world. You know, is the world a good place, a bad place? It's Darwinian. We're all in competition. You know, what do you, they have a point of view about that. And, and they understand self-awareness as an ongoing project. You know, we, we kind of hopefully make some fundamental investment in knowing ourselves, you know, however we do that, whether some of the things we study at university or people who take a spiritual path and do it on retreat or people who are devotees of Enneagram or, you know, any other tool for, building self-awareness. So there's a kind of a fundamental investment piece, but also I think a, a kind of a everyday, it's still a process, you know, there's more I can learn and, and life situations teach me about myself. So the other thing I would mention right away, the phrase I used to encapsulate it came from actually a military general, Eric Shinseki, and in his retirement speech, he said, you must love those you lead before you can be an effective leader. And remember I said before that, uh, you know, one of the core Air Force definitions of leadership has something to do with winning respect and cooperation and so on. And I think one of the ways that good leaders win the confidence and cooperation of people on their team is when the people on the team feel, yeah, this 
person actually cares about me, you know, wants me to do well, to flourish, to grow in my own career. You know, it's not all about the manager, but it's about me too. And, you know, we don't, I don't expect people would use a word like love in a, in a workplace, although it's interesting that this general in the toughest business on earth didn't feel shy about using that word. But however, whatever kind of word one wants to hang on it, you know, the idea would be at its most basic level, do you care about the people who work for you? And do you want their good, not just your own? You know, you mentioned about uh, being self-aware or knowing yourself. Some of the listeners would be um, aware of the Jesuits and, and that religious order. Others would not. So I'm actually going to capture just a bit of you introducing who and what the Jesuits are. Would you mind that? Uh, no, not at all. So the Jesuits would be a Catholic uh, religious order of priests or brothers. You know, people probably would have heard of Dominicans, Franciscans. We have a, a large number of women's religious orders, Dominicans, Sisters of Mercy, Sisters of Charity, and so on. You know, those, those would be analogous. You know, they may be women, they may be men. They'd all be Catholic. So in some ways, everything's exactly the same. But, you know, they might be differentiated either by doing specific work, like maybe a religious order is just uh, specializing in healthcare, hospitals, we'd know about that in common spirit, or in education, or maybe they have distinctive styles of praying, or maybe they um, follow closely the example of a founding generation. So, you know, that these religious orders come together in different kinds of ways for different purposes. And the Jesuits were founded in about the, uh, or not in about, in the 16th century, by Ignatius of Loyola. Some people would know that name. And they'd be best known for education nowadays, although that's by no means the only thing they do. But, you know, people have probably heard of institutions like uh, Gonzaga, Georgetown, Boston College, University of San Francisco. These are Jesuit universities. Some of the ideas that I talk about in, in, uh, in heroic leadership, let's say, when I say it's drawn from the history of the Jesuits, in a way what I'm, I'm doing is maybe taking some idea or principle or value that for them might have very deep religious roots and trying to translate it into a more everyday language that anybody could resonate with. So Making it more accessible, yes. Exactly. That would be a better way of putting it, yeah. You know, in, in that work on heroic leadership, uh, a couple of your chapters seem to have this focus of of becoming self-aware. Chapter 5 speaks about to order one's life. And then chapter six, you speak about the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, which was really a process about becoming more self-aware. And then as well, you kind of move on again to a chapter entitled, The Whole World Becomes Our House. Not unlike in your book, Everyone Leads, and you offer five pillars. You talk about the importance of reaching out beyond our doors that theme of reaching out and the importance of it in leadership and reaching out beyond perhaps comfort levels. Could you, could you expand about uh, on that kind of theme a bit for us? Uh, yeah. And may, maybe I could talk about it in a couple of different ways. Real, one of the really big ideas that Ignatius has, which can maybe be a tiny bit tricky to grasp a hold of, but I think it's quite powerful in all kinds of situations, is he has this idea of you have to make yourself free internally to uh, make the choices or decisions or do the things that are going to best serve your mission. And his insight, his idea is that we tend to carry around all kinds of inner crap and baggage. He doesn't use the words crap and baggage, but you have my idea. You have you get the idea. You know, like yes. it could be my I'm hung up on my own status. 
you know, my own ego, my own greed, my own need for approval, my own fears of making a mistake, uh, my own biases. You know, I grew up, I'm an Irish Catholic kid from Queens. I'm very comfortable with Irish Catholic kids, you know, and that gives me certain biases in terms of interacting with folks maybe of different backgrounds, traditions, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, whatever. And his thought is that these things, to use a very modern word, a term, maybe become sources of unconscious bias for us. In other words, they sort of prejudices, hold us back, limit us from going where we maybe ought to go or doing what we ought to do. A, a lot of folks listening to us would be aware that uh, Catholic health initiatives and dignity merged, you know, that's how common spirit came together. People's natural instinct is to be attached to, uh, you know, our way of doing it, our culture, our name, our background. And, you know, the, the kind of thing that we all have to figure out for ourselves is what do I need to let go of in order to best serve the mission we're tried, we're here to try to accomplish, you know, and to try to understand the baggage inside me that might be standing in the way of that. Now, to you know, to sort of further come around to your language about reaching out and and so on, I think that you know, cultivating this kind of inner freedom that okay, you know, I mean, I just go and do where the mission leads me, you know, what I need to do. That that sort of freedom. It becomes the entree or the point of departure for uh, being willing to really go out outside oneself, you know. Uh, so in the in the world of healthcare, you know, a lot of healthcare organizations now, including Common Spirit, are thinking about talking about how do we get better at getting involved in social determinants of health and keeping populations healthy, getting outside of the acute care hospital uh, setting, all the, all these kinds of things, and reaching out in those ways, in other words, being willing to go there, being willing to experiment with new things, being willing to create new alliances, try different ways of doing things, all of that will kind of count on a sort of a predisposition of freedom to be willing to try new things and look new places. So the concept of reaching out, of making the world our home, to use a, a little Jesuit mantra, is very much rooted in in the inner attitude or the inner disposition to be able to be free and uh, to go where the mission leads or calls or demands. Well, the Mission Innovation Podcast really looks at this intersection between mission, leadership, culture, and spirit. And given the kind of work that mission leaders have been involved in, and maybe traditionally involved in and traditional ways that they've done their work. How do you see that mission needs to be more innovative in healthcare or elsewhere, yeah. uh, given what you're seeing? Yeah. You want like uh, a, a dozen different ways or a hundred or, <laughs> well, I mean, I think we all, we all have our version of the same kinds of challenges in a world that's really changing very rapidly. And I think we all have a kind of a traditional idea of how mission functions inside a hospital building. What about home health care? What about telehealth? How do we weave mission through some of those new modalities of given care? I feel like there's really a lot of innovation and, and thinking and work to be done there. Another thing that crossed my mind is, um, you know, we live in, in a society that's becoming much more secular and whether it's people who come to work in big healthcare organizations like Common Spirit or people who come for care, 
how do we get good at translating our sense of mission and our values and so on in in ways that will enfranchise and appeal to folks who may have very different or no religious traditions, you know? So that's kind of another area that that to me is kind of a head scratcher or an opportunity for some innovation. Another area that I see as a, a big opportunity for mission is that it seems clear that over time, we're going to have to knit ourselves better into communities. Uh, you know, like in other words, we're not like a hospital sitting alone as a silo island. Our roots as a healthcare system, of course, are, are Catholic in common spirit. We have many traditions represented, but you know, it, it, the Catholic Church is is a core part of our tradition. And to me, the Catholic Church has an utterly unparalleled network in communities in every community we work in. And so, how are we going to take advantage of that in knitting together the things we need to do to to operate within communities? You know what I'm saying? So, for another word, in other right. words, as a hospital. We may not have a great network outside uh, our walls in the local community, but heck, there are a bunch of parishes and houses of worship that sure do, you know, and we might not be able to offer every service that somebody who's substance addicted may need, you know, in order to live a healthy life outside um, treatment uh, settings. But heck, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, food banks, you know, other uh, often faith-based uh, social care initiatives sure will. It seems to me that people in, in mission areas can often be the leading edge of helping us uh, knit together this kind of broader network that could really help us do our mission. So it's a challenging but also potentially really fertile time for the mission area to, to show a lot of leadership. Any thoughts on on what mission leaders might need to foster uh, within themselves to sustain themselves and and succeed? I know that uh, you have written on uh, key habits for maintaining a healthy, successful life. I know that you've identified that there are some key pillars for organizations or individuals if they're going to succeed. What's your thoughts on on how leaders within mission or outside of mission? need to be thinking about how they lead and how they sustain themselves going forward in this new environment. One of the ideas that's been influential on me is from a book now, it's pretty vintage, called Built, Built to Last. And, you know, and their thesis is that, you know, healthy organizations on the one hand, they use the word preserve the core. In other words, they have a, they have a strong sense of what's core, what's non-negotiable, what are we about here? What, are, you know, this, something like that, that doesn't really change. But then on the other hand, they're willing to put everything else on the table, which they call stimulate progress. And their thesis is that, you know, in healthy organizations, and I believe, and I've argued in healthy individuals too, in organizations, they have that same kind of thing going on. In other words, they have a clear sense of what's core, non-negotiable, what we stand for, sense of whatever, however, whatever words you want to hang on that, you know, mission folks who can role model a sort of a preserve the core, stimulate progress life are really adding a lot of value to the organization that in this time of tumultuous change that's going to continue. And on the other hand, mission folks who can't grasp either or both pieces of that dynamic, you know, they're not going to help us to get done what we need to get done. Chris, one of the um, very interesting pieces of your story 
is you're having lived perhaps in, in somewhat two different worlds. Um, you know, you, you contrast time with an organization, a religious congregation like the Jesuits, with your work in, in the banking system as well. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what helped you in building a bridge between those two worlds? What common ground were you able to find? Because I think sometimes mission leaders might feel in the same place, sometimes in two separate worlds, but consistently trying to build bridges between them. You know, one thing I'd say is over time, you know, one of the, one of the conclusions I've come to is, you know, great leadership is great leadership. One of the things that's helped me is, you know, this idea that, no, wait a minute, you know, it's not like different, you know, I'm going to put on my mission hat and now be a kind of a spiritual person. And now uh, an hour later, I'm going to be sitting in a business meeting and leadership means certain, something totally different. That, that kind of split life thinking is really going to be a problem for a person or an organization. So maybe one thing I would say is that's helped me over time is kind of a realization of, no, you know, it should be the same idea, same principles in any aspect of, of, of going about this. You know, it's not like there's a different business thing and a different spiritual thing. You know, there's just one thing. You know, sometimes when you have a discussion about the word leadership, what is on people's minds are super top of the house, you know, like, the chief executive and you know sometimes not even that like sometimes people think of the president of the united states you know that 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 word leadership has to do only with super top of the hierarchy and i really kind of work with a totally different definition of leadership which is drawn from the dictionary that it has something to do with pointing away or direction and influencing others and when you boil leadership down to that definition then it really applies to everybody, you know, because whether to take the healthcare environment, somebody is um, managing a thousand people or a sole practitioner nurse or uh, working in a team of accountants, everybody has some chance to role model certain values and to have some influence, large or small. So the most important message I feel like I, I give when I deliver talks or conferences is the challenge or invitation that each person appreciate and take on their leadership opportunity and responsibility. And as people listened, they were all throughout thinking, what does this mean for me in my life and work right now? This doesn't have to do with me, but the president of our hospital, how does it relate to him or her? Then I would say, oh man, you got to rewind and re-listen because I was talking about you, not about the guy who's running the place or the woman who's running the place. What are some of the systemic changes that you think might be necessary in organizations that are trying to have a level of integration between mission, leadership, culture, and spirit? Are there some systemic changes that you think are necessary for the emergence of something new that's necessary? When the predecessor organizations of, of much of Common Spirit were founded, you know, in a, the pieces of the system that were founded by orders of, of women religious, they, of course, would not have had a concept of, oh, yeah, there's the sisters and the business people. Nor would they have said to a sister, okay, you come in here for a week and I give you a handbook, you read a few rules and okay, boom, off you go. You're ready to kind of represent our spirituality in, in the workplace. We live in a totally different time, totally different world. By no means am I suggesting we need to go back to anything. But what I am raising as what I think is a quandary is that for the folks who 
originated and catalyzed the growth of and guided these uh, hospitals and systems and organizations for many decades, what they were doing was deeply a product of their spirituality. You know, I guess I feel by definition in today's more secular world, in a more specialized world where people are coming up within certain career uh, specializations, uh, we run the risk of divorcing the spiritual piece from the work of, of doing healthcare. I don't have a big solution to that by any means. I probably haven't even articulated my concern very clearly. But but in one way or another, what I'm trying to get to is I think that we need to get to a place where wherever they're coming from, whatever people's specialty, whatever people's tradition, we need folks you know, in governance, top management, hopefully all the way through the organization who are bringing some real sense of their own spirituality to their work, you know, that there's a motive that's going on here that's that's somehow spiritual. And I think I've made a point quite clear more than once up to now. And but but if not, let me clarify it again. When I say that, I'm not saying everybody should be Catholic or should believe what I believe or, uh, you know, the spirituality that they manifest should be should be in the Catholic tradition. I'm, I'm saying we have the Christian person sort of inspired and motivated to be doing what they're doing because of, of their inner uh, beliefs and values and sense of what's good and bad and right and wrong. And the same with the Muslim doctor and the Jewish nurse and the person who may be a secular humanist, you know, that they too have um, sources of meaning and spirituality that are driving them to invest in this mission and, and be part of that mission. So, yeah, so how we get people to bring their spirituality to work, so to speak, uh, th- that to me is um, is a part of the conundrum you talk talk about of how we knit together culture, spirit, all those other words that you said. <laughs> not not easy to do. You know, in your in your work, everyone leads how to revitalize the Catholic Church. You named five pillars that you thought were important. Be entrepreneurial was one. Be accountable was another. Reach out beyond our doors. Uh, the fact that we have one calling and finally having fun and, and spreading joy. Those those key five pillars, they seem to be not only a roadmap for revitalizing large organizations or churches, they also seem to be a bit of a roadmap for any leader in any organization. Well, I hope you're right. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. I, I'd feel that way. You know, you know, just to talk about uh, a couple of them, you know, one of the points of the book is, is being more entrepreneurial. And if the world changes, especially if you're a challenged organization, you cannot keep doing what you've been, what you did 50 years ago and expect things to go well. I mean, that's utter craziness. Um, I happen to be a kind of a disciple, pardon the word, of Lou Gerstner, a guy, the guy who helped save IBM once upon a time. And I remember one of his great lines was that only organizations in, in crisis are willing to do the things necessary to transform themselves. And, you know, I happen to believe that to some extent, you know, that, that people don't like to change, despite what we all say, and organizations become very bureaucratic and wedded to the way they, ways they do things. And so it's very hard to get organizations to change absent, you know, an imperative uh, from poor performance or, or something like that. So yeah, uh, the, the principles that I wrote about with respect to revitalizing the Catholic Church, I, I think they would be, by analogy, almost all equally relevant in any kind of organization. 
I heard an interesting statistic the other day that by the year 2020, that half of the workforce in healthcare would be made up of millennials. As you, as you think of the next generation of colleagues who would come into healthcare or else, elsewhere, what advice would you have for them in their own desire to want to engage and serve in their community? The advice I'd have for them and for my own colleagues is I don't have a clue. You know, you know, I think we we tend to pretend that we get what people want and need, what will motivate them, uh, what will give them a fulfilling, meaningful workplace, you know, this kind of stuff. I mean, I hope I have some wisdom, you know, that I've learned some things over the years. But Chris Chris Lowney at my age is not gonna sit down and write the master plan of what will be most meaningful to 20 and 30 somethings in, in their workplaces. So I guess where I'm going is I feel like the first thing we need to do is sit down with folks in a different generation and, and kind of understand from them. And that I hope sounds like a really obvious step, but it's often a step we skip over. That's what I would say. Now, I don't have any doubt that healthcare uh, and, and in particular common spirit where I'm on the board um can really offer um, a deeply meaningful uh, opportunity to, to make a positive difference in the world for folks of any generational group. But discovering how to push the button with folks of this or that generation and make that, uh, make that apparent to them why this is really such a great opportunity, that I think we need uh, to invite them to the table and, and help us understand that and tell us a bit how, how we can frame our, our proposal, our offering, our opportunities in, in the way that's going to be most meaningful to them and their peers. Appreciation to our guest, Chris Lowney, for joining us in conversation today. And appreciation, as always, to our listeners. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is the Mission Innovation Podcast.